Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Thursday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast powered by Twisted Tea. Today, we have Ben Utt. Ben played college football at Georgia Tech before playing 10 years in the NFL for the Baltimore and Indianapolis Colts, despite being an undrafted free agent out of college. We talked about his wild path to the NFL that included a gap year after getting cut by Tom Landry and the Cowboys how his second opportunity came to get into Colts camp, how he became a starter three weeks later, and boom, kickstart a 10-year career. We also discussed him playing at Georgia Tech for the legendary head coach Bill Curry, playing through two player strikes, his post-football career as he is the executive vice president of Invesco Distributors, and a whole lot more. Tons of great stories for a guy that played in a very fascinating era of the NFL. He also played with Ole Miss legend Jeff Harrod there towards the end in Indianapolis. So I think you'll really enjoy the discussion. He's an awesome guy with an incredible story. Before we do that, though, wanted to remind you, this podcast is brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxford. Rent the Sip Oxford's Turnberry unit is located right off Old Taylor Road, less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus. It will sleep eight comfortably. It is gated. It includes amenities such as a, a pool, a sauna, tennis courts. It is gated. It will sleep eight comfortably. It is a perfect spot for a weekend getaway in Oxford or maybe just a couple nights passing through in the middle of the week, whatever the case may be. Hotels can be expensive, particularly on big weekends. It's hard to find a place to stay. Rent the Sip Oxford has you covered. I know some of you out there want to come to the Mercer game. Yes, it'll be hot, but it's the season opener. And maybe you're looking for a place to stay. This unit is still available for Mercer weekend. Go online to rentthesipoxford.com and book it today. If you use the promo code RIPPYWRITES, R-I-P-P-E-E, writes, R-I-T-E-S, you and you get a 100 bucks off any two-night stay. Take advantage of this deal. It is a great place to stay. It is walking distance from the Ole Miss campus, walking distance to the Grove, walking distance to Vaught-Hemingway, and it is available for the first home game as well as Vandy and ULM. Check them out, rentthesipoxford.com. Don't miss out on this. Book your stay today. That is rentthesipoxford.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Seaspire. It's time to upgrade your home internet to the best service on the market with Seaspire Fiber. The past few years have shown us how important it is to have reliable inter home internet connection for you and your family. That's why Seaspire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99.99% uptime. Seaspire also prides themselves with the best customer service in the industry. Their customer service is award-winning, local service based out of the Southeast with industry low call wait time. Seaspire provides one gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and South Alabama regions. Seaspire is proud to announce the release of their brand new two gigabit and eight gigabit internet plans. Save yourself the hassle by not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys. Go online to cspire.com today and use promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, -E, for one month of free service. You hear that? If you just for listening to this podcast, you get one month of free service and the best internet on the market. Check it out today. Seaspire, customer inspired. All right, here is 10-year NFL veteran Ben Utt. All right, we now welcome on the second ever guest from the Rob Vincent School of Journalism, NFL vet, Baltimore Colts, Indianapolis Colts, 10-year career, played at Georgia Tech, Ben Utt. I've been looking forward to this. We've been connecting for trying to connect for a couple of weeks. I appreciate you coming on. How are you doing? Brian, we're doing we're doing great. Thanks for your patience. It's been uh, it's been busy, a lot of things going on, but really happy to connect with you. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I'll say this: I really enjoyed the podcast with Scott Thompson that Vincent hooked you up with. So, yeah, keeping it in house. But yeah, 
that was as we were talking before we started recording that was one of my favorite interviews i've done in a while it got great feedback one of the best from a summer podcast in particular that we've ever had on this short-lived edition of the rippy rights podcast so i was like rob's batting a thousand let's get his next buddy on and let's yeah. let's shoot the shit for a little bit and it'll uh it'll be great and so i guess we'll start there so you're an nfl vet you're one of the rare players that played for an organization that moves cities which we'll get into a little bit later you have a very storied career but you weren't like a blue chipper from the start. And I guess we'll go back to the very beginning. You're a Georgia native. You went to Georgia Tech. You played offensive line. We'll start there. At what point in your football career did you think, okay, I could play in college and maybe professionally? When did that kind of click for you? You know, um, college, college came as a, almost as a gift. I was um, – I, I played – like anything else that happens in life, you get some you get some really good support from some really good people that help you along the way. In this case, uh, Coach Buck Cravey, who's a legendary coach down in South Georgia, who's our coach in Vidalia, uh, Vidalia, Georgia, where I grew up at, and he could see that he could see the potential. And I'm the, literally the first one in my my family to uh, to go to college and get a, and get a degree. And I'd probably be and probably gone in the military or something like that if I hadn't uh, hadn't if I didn't get the offer to go to, to go to Georgia tech. And then when I was at tech, um, I played enough, got enough playing time. I was a starter. I, I was a four year starter at Georgia tech, uh, special teams, defense and, and then offense. And um, saw some of the other guys that were leaving and going pro probably my, probably my sophomore junior year. It's like, you know, I could, I could probably do that. If I, if I, if I get after, I could probably, I could probably do that. And my grades were not good at Georgia tech. So the prospects were either, you know, going pro, uh, going back and, you know, taking a beating from my father, even at that, even at that age. Um, so, yeah, I got the, I got the opportunity to go, uh, to go, to go try out. I originally signed with the Dallas Cowboys and uh, made it to the, made it to the last cut. And Tom Landry actually, you know, they, they have a guy, they have a guy come to your door during training camp, comes in, you know, there's knock on the door. That's the Turk. He says, hey, coach wants to see you bring your playbook. So I go like that Tom movie Landry. from Invincible. That's kind of the fat, the the famous line from it. It was like, "Coach wants to see you bring your playbook." That's when you know you basically just died in a football. Set. So legit, yeah. That's 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 legit. So, um, and I was I was an undrafted free agent. Uh, I didn't get I didn't get drafted after my after my senior year at Georgia Tech. We were we had some good athletes on that team, but we weren't a good team. So anyway, I'm, uh, you know, I get the nod from uh, from the turf to go see Tom Landry. I actually. Started to argue with him until I realized it was Tom Landry. Probably knows what the hell he's talking about. Went back to Georgia Tech, got my degree, and the uh, the Colts called. Got a chance to uh, got a chance to go play for them in Baltimore, and wound up starting the next 110 games. So uh, even though I was undrafted, you know, you find it, you find a spot. You got to be lucky. You got you got to get in a system where they need guys. And again, through my really through my whole career, my whole life, I've had um, I've had I've been fortunate to have people kind of look after me or at least at least kind of show me the way and mentor me some. So you mentioned coming out of high school, you got to Georgia Tech with some good fortune. So you weren't necessarily, and I know recruiting was a little bit different back then, but you weren't really like a blue chipper recruit that had your plethora of options at D1 schools. Like I know you hit on it a second ago, but like if not Georgia Tech, what was going to happen to a high school age Ben Ut? Yeah, like I said, I probably would have gone in the military or something. I did get uh, I did get recruited a little bit. I got uh, recruited by South Carolina and uh, also Florida State. This was when Bobby Bowden was brand new at Florida State. 
And uh, he actually came to Vida and we had uh, we had breakfast with him and his uh, recruiting coach. Uh, I'll think of his name in a second. Pretty good, pretty good guy. Actually, the guy that was, uh, I should think of his name because he actually wound up starting a Central Florida program. But um, Bobby Bowden, his assistant coach, my dad and I had uh, had breakfast with him at, at the uh, Southern Cafe in Vidalia. And uh, my dad wound up, you know, he gave me his pitch, but they didn't want to give me a scholarship. And uh, Georgia Tech did. Georgia Tech offered a scholarship. So my dad said, no, nah, I think we're just keeping Penn State. My dad was an engineer also. So it just, he, you know, his buddies were engineers. So it just made sense to go to Georgia Tech anyway. But we didn't win a lot of, we didn't win a lot of football games. Whereas, you know, Florida State was in the news a lot. for good, Actually, for good and bad. And you mentioned you were from South Georgia, and I was looking up where Vidalia was earlier because a buddy of mine in college is a guy named Jake Lastinger. His father, John Lastinger, actually played college football at Georgia for a bit. I think he's probably a little bit younger than you. I was trying to see if the timelines matched up, but he played at Valdosta High School. Georgia has very good high school football, as I'm sure you're well aware. What kind of program was your high school program when you were coming through? We were good. Valdosta is a much bigger school. So we're talking about we're talking about five A. In fact, back then the classifications were actually different too. But you would you would look at you look at the Valdosta Wildcats as being a five A team and the Vida Indians being a one A or maybe a two A team like that. So we you know the, the the competition level, you just have a lot more kids at those at those bigger schools like like Valdosta. But yeah, that's there was some great, great talent that came out of came out of Valdosta and Lowndes County back in, back in those days. Um, literally when it, back in the seventies, that was the number one high school team in the nation was, was Valdosta. But I you, we were, we were on the map, but we, we weren't, we were nationally ranked. One of my closest friends uh, in college is, uh, is a, now an NFL agent and he's from Cleveland, Mississippi, which is where Delta state is. And when he was getting his start, in the industry, he was trying to find guys that were, you know, a little bit off the radar, maybe had a shot to make a club, particularly Delta State guys, you know, D2 or whatever Delta State is now, you know, professional future, probably not a high draft pick. But he was this kid named Nick, Nick Melsop, who's in camp with the Chargers, was a Delta, ended up at Delta State after being at a D2 school in Ohio. His senior year in high school, he was like 6'3, 6'4, like 220. By the time he left Delta State, he was 6'6", 350. When you figured out in high school you were going to become an offensive lineman, what were you weighing? Did you know all along I'm going to be an offensive lineman, or are you kind of a developmental guy that grew into your own? No, man. I, I was an all-state tight end. I wasn't wow. thinking about – I was an all-state tight end. I was an outside linebacker defense slash defensive end, uh, but a stand-up defensive end like they played in high school. No, I wasn't I wasn't an alignment at all. I was – no, I was uh, – so when I got to when I got to uh, Georgia Tech, uh, Bill Curry actually we'll talk about we'll talk about Coach Curry a little bit later and Pepper Rogers too. But um, when I went to Tech, I was just trying to I was just trying to find a spot on the team to actually play. So I got on. I had a little bit of speed. Not, and when I went to Tech, I was I was six three, hundred and ninety five pounds. I wasn't wow. I wasn't even two I wasn't two hundred pounds. But I also ran track in high school. So I had some, I had some speed. Um, I was playing tight end. I was playing outside linebacker. And my, uh, my sophomore year, we had a bunch of injuries on the offensive line. And the guys I was playing behind, uh, 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 Reggie Wilkes and Freeman Colbert were all Americans. Reggie Wilkes went on to get, I think he was a, 
one or two second-round draft choices. The Philadelphia Eagles wound up winning the Super Bowl with those guys. I'm playing behind them, so I'm getting zero playing time on defense. But a bunch of injuries on offensive line, and Pepper Rogers said, "Hey, come over here and come over here and play play offensive guard for me." It's like, Coach, I can't play guard. I got like a towel and sweatbands and shit like that. He goes, "Get over, get over here and play guard." And literally, it was one of those things where it just worked. I just, I understood it. I got it. I really liked it. I love the camaraderie with with the offensive line and everybody kind of working together, the way the execution works, the choreography, the timing, all that stuff. I just, I just really liked that as opposed to read and react when you're on, when you're on defense. And uh, I was, like I said, I was a, I was a all-state tight end. So I just, a lot of it, I just kind of moved inside the guard at that time. You still had to be pretty athletic too, because you were you're pulling a lot. We're doing, you're doing double reads, you're doing all kinds of stuff like that. So you're kind of the more athletic of the guys up there, but, yeah, no, I wasn't. I wasn't planning on being a being an offensive lineman. And then, uh, you know, my we were talking about weights because I went to Georgia Tech. Like I said, weighing about 195 pounds. My peak in the NFL, I was 295. Wow. 295. My, my, 295. My bench press was 505. That was my my max. And of course, it was the 80s. So we were doing uh, we were doing things to help enhance our strength and our size and all that, all that sort of thing that they can't, they can't do these days. And so your perspective on switching to offensive line was interesting to me when you said it is you said you really liked it. You liked the cohesion of everybody working together for one, a common goal. But if one guy screws up, all four other guys look pretty damn bad too. That's not really often, like at least at surface level, what people tell you if they move from a tight end where you get to catch the football. I know it's a lot of blocking or defensive end where you get to sack the quarterback. It's kind of the famous David Cutcliffe line. I don't know if you could call it famous, but he he had that semi-viral quote where he was talking about like, these guys don't get stats. They literally just show up every day and maul people really in kind of like a thankless job. It's interesting to me that you actually liked that better, that you were a defensive end and all state tight end. And you actually enjoyed the fact that you were going to play interior offensive line. You really genuinely enjoyed I, the switch. I like I like playing offensive line. I really do. Um, it's also the reason why I will not play fantasy football until you have an offensive line, <laughs> right? I love that. I like I that. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but somebody could come up with something where you just like you have to pick a defense. You pick this week's offensive line, right? And you and what are the stats? You know how many sacks were given up? How much? You know how many yards rushing, how many yards passing, that sort of thing. You can you can come up with a few things, but you got to pick an offensive line. I'm not playing. I'm not playing that game until they make it, until they add an offensive, <laughs> an offensive line to it. So you mentioned you get the position switch. You know, you did, it was kind of just get over here and let's do it. I imagine there had to be an immediate. Oh man, I have to gain a little weight here. And one of the things that's interesting to me about that is offensive line. A friend of mine from high school, a guy named Sean Rawlings, played at Ole Miss. He was a late take. He was a talented kid, but he was a guy that's like, you're not going to play for a couple years. Um, we're going to develop you, and hopefully by your junior or senior year, we'll play. Well, all of a sudden, Laramie Tunsil gets into an NCAA-related issue. He's suspended. He's Ole Miss's left tackle entering the tw 2015 season. And all of a sudden, my guy Sean ends up starting the third game of the year in Bryant-Denny Stadium at Tuscaloosa <laughs> at tackle. And he's kind of like, man, I don't know really know how I got here. But weight gain was a big aspect for him. And he was like, I didn't really understand how to gain good weight. He's like, I first thought it was just go to Wendy's, order $30 worth of food and get it down and just get bigger and bigger. But he's like, I realized that's not really how you do it. In that day and age where 
I mean, I'm making you sound ancient here. I don't mean to, but like with strength and conditioning and dietary stuff being what it is now, it wasn't the same then. How did you figure out how to gain weight healthily, if that makes sense? You know what? One, you're in, when you go to college from living at your house, when your mom's cooking for you, my, my mother was a great cook. My dad was a good cook too. Uh, we ate well, but you don't eat like you eat at college, not at a training table, not at an NCAA, you know, a major college training table. You get a lot of food there. Plus, you I mean, it's, that was really the first time I ever lifted weights. I'd never I'd never lifted weights before I got to I got to college. You know, we did um, we did training and things like that. So we were running. We're doing all the cardio types type stuff. And a number of us, you know, we worked in watermelon field and some shit like that to get in shape for football season. Those were those were tough, dirty, kind of nasty jobs. But we never really lifted weights. So when I got to Georgia Tech, you know, it's a there's a that's a blank canvas right there. Put some, and I had the I had the height. I was six four, you know, going on going on six five. So I had the height. I had the frame. I just needed some meat on there. So once uh you know once we started hitting the, you know, eating three four four times a day with snacks, and then hitting the weight room, it just it just came. And those are both of those things are disciplines too. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna do it the right way, both of them are disciplines. So I was trying to make you get to Georgia Tech, and you mentioned you guys weren't very good for most of the time you were there. You didn't win a ton of football games. Uh, Wikipedia needs to do a better job of updating it beyond 1980. From what the timeline I have, you were drafted after the 1982 college football season. Is that correct, or was your last college season 81? My 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 senior year at Georgia Tech was 1980. Oh and, wow! Yeah, so I so I um uh, my senior year at Georgia Tech was 1980. I signed with the Cowboys. Like I said, made it to the last cut with them. Uh, went back to Georgia Tech. Uh, coached. I was an assistant coach for for Bill Curry, and uh, did that through the Alabama game, where Georgia Tech beat Alabama. So my record in college coaching is one and zero. I like uh, that. And then I got that. Yeah, I graduated. I graduated with my wife. She and I were. Um, uh, she and I were, were still dating at the time. We graduated in December of '81. And then I went to, we got married in April and I went to, uh, we, actually, we actually moved up Austin, Texas because she's an engineer. Uh, she graduated third in her class at Georgia Tech, by the way. So uh, she was cheating off my, she was not cheating off my paper. Let me put <laughs> that is no like small this. accomplishment. That is yeah, she just, she's, way, she's way smart. Um, moved to Austin, Texas for her job. She had a, she had a great job with IBM. And then I went to, uh, I went to Baltimore for training camp with the Colts and then made it, um, uh, Made it there, so that was kind of the that's kind of the timeline coming out of coming out of Georgia Tech. So when you got to Georgia, my, my Tech, rookie my rookie year my rookie year with the Colts was was nineteen eighty two. Okay, so you took like the world's most unique gap year, basically. <laughs> a lot of college students take a gap year and they do some different things. You just happened to take a gap year and then go to the NFL. You did some coaching on the side. Yeah, yeah, right. I got a, I got a gap year doing that. It was it was funny too because. Uh, in 1982, we went on strike. The NFL went on strike. It was the um, uh, it was the first kind of full walkout strike, and uh, so we were we were out for like eight weeks or something like that. And I uh, was back in back in Austin, Texas, working out. We got we had a pretty good crew in Austin that uh, that worked out together. Um, guys like Roosevelt Leaks, uh, the Blackwood Brothers, Alfred Jenkins, guys like that. And I was just a rookie, so I loved hanging out with those guys, just kind of watching what the you know, what's the process? How do you how do you do this stuff? And uh, 
I got I want to get a job at a place called Custom Golf just answering the phones. Uh, just answering the phones and taking orders because I had to had, I couldn't stay at home. I had to had to make a living and between between working out, that's uh, that was that was the job I did. So uh, that's why I just literally wrote down in like three side questions. But real quick, I want to go back to Georgia Tech. Again, the internet just may be deceiving us all here. So please kind of catch us up on the timeline. Was Bill Curry at Georgia Tech when you came out of high school, or did he come later? He was at Georgia Tech when I was in high school. So here, here's here's the way that worked. Is it okay? Um, Bill Curry had retired from the NFL. He was, uh, I don't know if you know Bill's background or not, but he's, you know, all pro, snapped the ball for Bart Starr, Johnny Unitas, played for Don Shula, played for Vince Lombardi. This guy's, this guy's legendary. My folks fell in love with him right away. But he was Super Bowl Rangers offensive line coach. He was Pepper Rogers offensive line coach. And I don't know what he did to pe- piss Pepper off, but Pepper gave him South Georgia to recruit. So, my, my coach, Buck Cravey, wound up, I don't know how they knew each other or whatever, but got Buck to come, got Bill Curry to come down and scout me. Came to a couple games, watched me play. I had to have some, some pretty good some pretty good games. So Pe- Pepper Rogers was the head coach. Bill was his offensive line coach. So when I got to Georgia Tech, I was expecting Bill to be there, but he took a job with Forrest Gregg. No, he took a job with Bart Starr to coach the Green Bay Packers to be the line coach up there. And uh, I played three years for Pepper Rogers. And after my junior year, Pepper got fired. And I love Pepper. I love Pepper Rogers. Great guy. And they brought Bill Curry back and love Bill Curry. So I'm just a, I'm a lucky guy with regards to that, that kind of thing. So Bill came back my senior year. I was captain and actually got to play for him. We weren't, we weren't very, we weren't very good. When I say we weren't very good, the players and the team weren't very good. And I think Bill would tell you too, that, you know, he was a new college coach, a uh, head coach, and we, we could have been better from a coaching staff also in organization, execution, play calling, things like that. Okay, so that makes sense. That kind of overlaps the timeline. I know you had alluded to that earlier, but it's finally kind of computing. So you mentioned you guys weren't very good and you didn't win a ton of games, and I imagine that was more so probably talking about the one year you played under Bill Curry because you went, you know, you had a winning season and then you won four games a one year, and then that last year you're one nine and one. The next selfish offensive lineman I meet will probably be the first one. They're all just unselfish by nature. But for you, your last year, I don't know what your expectations were going into the year, both individually or collectively. But did that wear on you, not winning hardly any games at all? How tough was that to get your head beat in every single day at the toughest position in football and not really have a ton of wins to show for it? Yeah, it's tough. We did, let me just let me back up. We did win my my freshman, sophomore, and junior year. We did win some games. We wound up going to the Peach Bowl my um, my sophomore year. Seven, I think it was seventy eight. Um, Pe- Pepper Rogers actually said, you know, maybe a story for another time. Pepper Rogers saved the Peach Bowl. He and Janet Livingston saved that saved that bowl game. So, you know, yeah, going into going into your senior year when expectations are kind of high, I've got uh, aspirations to maybe play at the pro level. It's it's disappointing. It's hard. It's hard to practice football if you're winning. It's really hard to practice football if you're, if you're losing. And you have you have to do it. You have to do it. You got to try and do the things right. It's really really hard to continue to keep young men's attention when they're losing. Also, so I know that was a challenge for the for the coaching staff. And you're right. We went, what was it? One nine and one. I think we I think we beat. 
like William and Mary, someone like that. And we tied Notre Dame. And the horrible thing about tying Notre Dame, who I think at the time was ranked maybe one or two, something like that, is that they put the Bulldogs into the national championship game. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So our, our travels down the street got a uh, got a plus one from us because we were we were able to bring Notre Dame down to our level. <laughs> they didn't play very well. And we did. We were out of, we were out of time. You didn't have the you didn't have the you didn't have the uh, overtime playoff rules that you do now in college football too. What's it like walking off the field after a three-hour football game and no one wins or loses? Are you of the camp of like I'd rather lose than tie? Or obviously you wouldn't rather lose, but like let's just play this to some sort of finality. What's it like walking off the field after a football game? You've been in the trenches for three hours and there's basically Absolutely. no fun. I you want you want to win or lose. You want to win. You want to win. Uh, but you want to win or win or lose. You know, some people say it's like kissing your sister or something like that. But um, <laughs> you know, it's no. You you play you play to you play to win. So when you got out of college, I was going to ask you initially, like, like what your kind of mindset was when you thought you could be a pretty good NFL football player. But your your path, as you've already outlined, generally to getting to the Colts was so unique that I guess I'll start here. Back in in that time, again, I'll go back to my my buddy who's started as an agent. He's in first internship was a guy named Lee Steinberg who really kind of revolutionized the sports agency industry. It wasn't really no, a thing. I don't like, really. I don't like. So he interned with Lee in Newport Beach for a year. I, I met Lee in his office one day and I started looking around like the photos in his office of the people he was like hanging out with. And it was like Obama and Kevin Costner. And these weren't like these weren't like stage photos. It was like them hanging out in a boat. And I was like, my God, who the hell is this guy? But he kind of revolutionized that. And I feel like in terms of detecting talent and the way NFL teams find talent changed because of that, too. And whereas I imagine back when you were playing in your senior year, the fact that you guys were one nine and one probably really hindered your ability to get noticed more so than it would nowadays. And some of it's just technology um, too, I guess. I don't know. I don't know about that, Brian. Here's the reason why is that if you can play, they're going to find you. Okay. Like, Like Jerry Rice. I mean, here's a guy from Mississippi Valley state. Why would, why would they, why would anybody spend the time to go to Mississippi Valley State when you could just fly into Atlanta, Georgia, and see all this talent right here, right? But if you're if you're good enough to play, they will they will find you. Um, I I don't think the I don't think sports agents change the way that players get scouted. I think sports agents change the way that players get marketed. Okay. And get and get sold. Okay, that's that's different. So the the NFL scouts are looking for talent. They're going to find you. They're going to know who you are. They're going to know your name, and you may be on a pecking order lower than somebody lower than somebody else. But um, yeah, but the agents, uh, yeah, yeah, I think the agents more or less uh, made it much more mark made it more marketable, and actually, I'm going to say probably more lucrative too, because they understood they started understanding when I was when I was playing and still coming in the league, there wasn't a whole lot of information you can get on player salary. Everything was just done. You know, here's your, here's your salary. Take here's your contract. Take it or leave it. Right. And Lee Steinberg, I want to say his first client was Steve Bartkowski, who played for the played for the Falcons. I think it's a really really interesting story in that they were they knew each other from class. They knew each other from college. And Bartkowski didn't know what what you know what do I what, what do I do what you know what's the what's the price to ask for or whatever. And Steinberg, who I think was uh, was a law student, said, "Well, here I'll I'll hand, let me see if I can help you with this." 
Simple, simple, simple as that. So you leave Georgia Tech and you go undrafted. You mentioned the story about Tom Landry and the Cowboys, and I want to get to that in a second. But like when you got there and you go undrafted, I would assume I didn't look this up, but I know back generally is further you go back in time, the more rounds the NFL draft was. How many rounds was the NFL draft when you were coming through? Oh, it was more than the seven that it is now, right? Oh, it was more. So yeah, it was like thirteen rounds, something like something like that. But it used to be like thirty rounds. Yeah, I mean, it used to be in you know. Curry tells a funny story because he was like a really, really late draft pick for the for the Packers and uh like 30th round or something like that. And um the, the story was that Vince Lombardi told the rest of the rest of the uh the coaches, hey, get, um give me something to laugh, give me something to laugh about with this last pick. So if they want to pick Curry, winds up being you know an all-pro and uh, probably ought to be in the Hall of Fame too. But yeah, there, there were a lot more picks back then. So when you went undrafted, were you discouraged at all? Were you thinking, man, this is kind of rough? Or were you just like, yeah, if I get a shot anywhere, I'm going to make it kind of known that I can play at this level? You know, there's a um, – Brian, there's a lead-up to it where you get a lot of attention from a lot of different teams. Hey, we're thinking about you. Or, you know, back then you were getting, we were just getting correspondence, whether it was a phone call or whether it was a letter. And I got letters from the Seahawks and Cowboys. and um, I, I, can't, I can't even tell you, tell you who else. And a guy by the name of a scout, that a, a local scout in the southeast area by the name of Tom Goosby, called me and said, "Hey, we want to offer you some. We want to offer you a, offer you a contract. Come play for the Dallas Cowboys." And Dallas Cowboys in the eighties were hot, man. That was oh, that yeah. was big. I mean, plus you had Dallas, the TV show on and stuff like that. Dallas was a, it was hot. Um, so one one time with a couple couple guys and you know scouted out a little bit and. Tom Gooseby took me and Lizzie out to my now wife. She was, we were dating back then. Uh, took us out to dinner and said, yeah, I'll go, I'll go ahead and sign with the Cowboys. What the hell it was for like $5,000. I, I got a sign and bonus of like 5,000 bucks, something along those lines. Um, but what I didn't do is I didn't, I didn't realize walking into the Dallas Cowboys where they're loaded with talent that the obstacle to make that team is going to be a lot harder than going to the Baltimore Colts who were really struggling and needed guys to play. So you got to, like I said, you got to find the right place. You got to find the right place for you where you get an opportunity to actually get on the field and get playing minutes. I'd be, I'd be sitting on the bench for, for a few years uh, on that Dallas Cowboys team because they had a lot of really good talent at offensive line. But what it did show me is what I didn't know, which is when you go from, when you go from college to pros, man, the intensity goes way up. It's the same game. But the intensity is way up. The speed is so much faster. Um, it's so much more physical. It's the, the the mental game is so much more about just moving where things are at, recognition, all that kind of stuff. And candidly, I can tell you, I'm, I wasn't ready. I, I honestly wasn't ready. I would cut my ass too. I wasn't. I just didn't have that mindset or that ability then. Going back to Georgia Tech, get my degree, graduating, get that stuff under my belt. And then going to the Colts training camp, I knew exactly what I had to do to make that team. We will get back to Ben in just a second, but I want to take a quick break to remind you. 
podcast is now brought to you by Twisted Tea. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any other hard beverage you've had before. It's made with real brewed tea, packs a flavorful punch with 5% alcohol, and no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that go down goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted Tea turns up on any occasion. Hell yeah, I added that part. Especially when you're cheering for your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate the game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to unforgettable game day experiences. Twisted Tea, a drink that feels fun and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. After a summer hiatus, Skybox is back. They're ready to full go for football season. They're already posting analysis on the site. To celebrate the return of football season, if you use the promo code FOOTBALL23, you get 50% off any package now through the first kick of the NFL, that Thursday night game coming up in two weeks. And also, if you use promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, you get 20% off any purchase. Just go online to skyboxsportspicks.com, find a picks packaging, try it for a day, a week, a month. I recommend going with the year-long all-access pass, college football, pro football, whatever the case may be. Pick your package. They'll send your picks in a nice color-coded spreadsheet each week, and boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were before signing up for Skybox. Make your football season a profitable one this year. Don't lose money based off your own liens. Go with the professionals, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy Rights subscriber, it's rippyrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now, it's three six-ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation you're getting for 20 bucks. It's prime grilling season. Summer's winding down. Go take advantage of that now. Then go find all your own favorites at LB's. It's the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious cuts of sausages, fresh seafood, different cuts of meat. I like the tri-tips. The filet burgers are always a favorite. Go find your own favorites at the best butcher shop in the world. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Ben Utt. That's a very interesting point you bring up too, because that's another that may be actually where agents have come in and played to people's favor when you talk about marketability and opportunities. Is I would just take a guess here. You didn't have an agent when you signed as an undrafted free agent with the Cowboys. Is that accurate? That's that is accurate. So nowadays, which is interesting to me, you mentioned like fit and being like, hey, you're actually a lot more likely to go find a team that has needs, that has struggled, and that you have a shot to make. Whereas I keep going back to this Melsop story is a similar one where he went through and and my buddy Michael was like, look, I'm not going to bullshit you here. You might get drafted sixth or seventh round. I know you want to hear your name called, but if you don't, it's not the worst thing in the world because it gives us some freedom to negotiate undrafted free agent deals with teams and decide where you might fit best. We don't want to stick you in a, in a, at a franchise with one of the best offensive lines in the NFL. We have the freedom now to stick you somewhere where you know, you might actually have a shot to get on a 53-man roster and get some playing time. I imagine you would have liked to have that guidance in hindsight where you signed with the Cowboys because that was the first opportunity you got and you, what you thought may be the only one. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, from, um, from from my time in the NFL, from 1982 on, there's always, there's always been improvements going on for the players um, because of guys like Bill Curry, who was president of the NFL Players Association back in the, back in the 70s. When I got there in 82, I went on two strikes, one in 82, one in um, 87. 
And the the information that is shared between players, agents, it's, it's more open. Who's making what, what, what contracts look like, what kind of deals and incentives are put in place, what your rights are as a player, all those things have just have, have just improved a hundredfold since I was since my rookie year in 19 in 1982. All that does is help the players from a standpoint that um, better better information, better opportunity. And like you said, they'll know with their agents. You're right. You're absolutely right. If you get drafted by let's see the Cleveland Browns, and it's like fuck, I don't want to play for the Cleveland Browns. They're always right. losing. You get it's better probably not to get drafted and go play someplace where you actually get a chance to maybe win some games, get a Super Bowl, you know, something something like that. And so you go to the Cowboys when Rob, this is one of the more famous stories that Rob had told me about your career. And this may be just be a byproduct where he's probably out there listening. Think I told you this kid doesn't listen to me. I thought this was at the end of your career. Tell me, I didn't know this was at the beginning and then started a gap year and then your kickstarted your career. I probably just misinterpreted him. Tell me getting the story of getting cut by Tom Landry. Which said, you know, the story about what? About getting cut by Tom Landry and the Dallas Cowboys. I've heard this is pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, so actually, like I said, I made it to there's there's four preseason games each each week. You know, you have to you, you try to keep hanging on till you make the 53 man roster. Um, and the last, you know, last few minutes to the very end, I actually ding my ding my knee up a little bit too, but made it to the made it to the very last last week and finally get that get that knock on the door. Coach wants to see you bring your playbook. And Tom Landry was Tom Landry was a good, solid, old time coach, and um, he explained to me, you know, some of the some of the reasons why he was letting me go, and he was very complimentary, and he was very just very, really professional about the way he was doing this, especially knowing you know I've been out there sweating my ass off, you know, uh, getting hit and beat up and all that stuff, trying to make make this team. So I did push back a little bit, and. Uh, you know, you can't, you're sitting there across from Tom Ranger, the guy's stoic, and he's an icon. And I just, you know, the little, the little voice inside my head said, he probably knows what he's talking about. So I just shook his head, said, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate that. And uh, head, headed, on, headed on back to Atlanta. Is that similar to the conversations they now show on Hard Knocks? One of the fascinating elements of Hard Knocks is when they cut a guy, it seems like the coaches are very candid about like, hey – you don't make a fit here, but we think you have a shot in the NFL. Like keep trying it. And they don't show these latter ones on camera as much, but presumably they tell some guys like, Hey, we cut you like, sorry, they don't tell them. But it seems like if they think a guy has a shot, they're kind of like, Hey, don't give up yet. You're just not a fit here. Was that conversation similar at all? You know what? I think it's, I think most of those things are truthful. It also depends on who you're dealing with. Some of the guys are just assholes. Yeah. Fair. Some, guys, <laughs> fair some guys are better guys too. Right. So you get you get treated as you treat those, um, but yeah, if there's if there's talent if there's talent in the league, you, you know these guys you'll, you'll wind up you'll wind up seeing them. But but the thing for me is that as I look back, it was actually I wasn't ready to be in the NFL at that time. Going back to Georgia Tech, getting married, growing up a little bit, even if it was just another nine months or or ten months, I I, I just just having that experience with the Cowboys at that level with that intensity and seeing the work ethic. When I got to Baltimore, I knew what to do. I, I knew what I, I knew what I knew what the tempo was. I knew what the what the intensity was going to be, all those, all of those things. And that I need to 
then I need to find some way to stand out. So that was, yeah. So for me, it was, it was an opportunity just to kind of mature a little bit. So you get cut and you take a year off without playing football. And that's a pretty unprecedented story. You hear about it from time and time again. There's a kid from Vicksburg, Malcolm Butler, who ended up having one of the most famous interceptions in Super Bowl history. I think the story with him is he was working at a Popeye's then ended up his way in Patriots training camp. And you just never know. But for you, after you go back and you take the year off and you do coaching, when the opportunity arises to go to the Colts, what was your mindset at that point? I was part of you like, man, do I really want to do this again? Do I really have a shot? Or are you all in on, I can still do this. I just need an opportunity. Well, two two things. One, I'm sure this opportunity came around because Bill Curry played for the Colts and is well-regarded. Um, that's one. And when the opportunity came around, I did. I, I was graduating from Georgia Tech. I had my Georgia Tech degree. I was actually out interviewing for jobs. I had interviewed for a job in Miami with Florida Power and Light. And I went, the coach called and said, we want, to, we want you to bring you to camp. So I called my father on the phone and asked him about it. He goes, you know what? Everybody deserves a second chance, and you can't be a 30-year-old rookie. So if you're going to go do it, go do it now. And part of it was, if go do this now so it's completely out of your system or you or you make the tape, right? But it, get it completely out of your system. And, uh, yeah, so I took I took his advice. I, you know, of course, I talked to, I talked to my wife about it. And uh, it's like, yeah, we're gonna go take a uh, go to Baltimore. And then, like I said, I started I, I started the first game. I was start I was actually the starting left tackle in the first uh, first game of the season, which was the Hall of Fame game against the uh, Minnesota Vikings. So and then and then opening uh, uh, opening day at left tackle against the uh, the New England Patriots. That's absolutely nuts. And the way you described that was exactly where my mind went was get it out of your system. Don't live with any sort of regret. If you really think there's any part of you that can be an NFL football player, just go try it one more time and get it completely out of your system. So that leads me to the next piece of it. I, well, I don't hold, know hold, on, let me, hold, hold on. Let me tell you, let me yeah, tell go you ahead. Great, let me tell you one great story about, and it's just kind of NFL and some of the brotherhood on this. We're playing the, we're playing the new England Patriots and I'm playing left tackle. I'm a rookie. Uh, you know, left tackle is a pretty – you got to be a superior athlete yes. to play left tackle, right? And I'm not I'm – I'm an athlete, but I'm probably not left tackle size. Anyway, I'm playing against Julius Adams, who's an all-pro with the New England Patriots. And Julie is good. He is a he, – and he's relentless. He is a pro's pro. I held this – he knew I was a rookie. I knew I was a rookie. Everybody in the stands knew I was a rookie. I held Julius. I cut his knees. I did everything I could to keep him off the quarterback all day long. So after the game, I'm, I'm coming out of the, coming out of the shower and the buses, both teams are in the, both teams got pulled in the same parking lot. Um, this is at the old Memorial stadium in Baltimore. And I'm coming out of the shower and one of the guys says, Hey, Julius Adams is looking for you outside. I'm thinking, Oh, this guy's going to kick my ass. <laughs> I, Cause I, I just, I, I held him so much, much that day. So I get out there and I said, Hey, Hey, Julie, I, I heard you were looking for me. And uh, he goes, hey, you're going to be okay. You know, keep your, keep your hands inside, keep moving your feet. Just give me a couple coaching tips. It was like, that's the coolest, that's the coolest fucking thing. That's that, amazing. For, for, a, for a veteran pro like that, to help a rookie player, just, just that kind of confidence from a guy who's, I, I would like to say a peer, but he's just, I mean, he's, this guy's an all pro, right? That, that it just, it meant the world to me. And there's, there's guys like that in the NFL that really help you to develop in your career and become what you can become. 
the other guy that was like that to me, that gave me some great mentorship was Ken Huff, who was, uh, who was the other guard at, uh, he was a starting guard, guard for the, for the Baltimore Colts. He's a guy that kind of taught me how to, how to be a pro, how to, how to play offensive guard. Um, you know, how you, how you study, how you watch film, how you, how you behave, kind of, you know, off the field, that's, that sort of stuff. So it was, um, yeah, you gotta have some great mentors like that. So the first story you told, take me through, uh, I may have just missed it in there. At what point was that in your career? Is that preseason game your first year with no, the Colts? Is that yeah, when you're in the regular season? That when my, did that that my, that's my rookie year, regular season. Okay. So still at a pretty formative time where you're probably still thinking, do I belong here yet? And I imagine after that where you're like, I'm the baddest MF around. Like, I, just, I will kick the shit out of anybody. Be, just glad to be here, Coach. <laughs> just glad to be here. So we talked about you getting back in with the Baltimore Colts. In whatever way you prefer to describe it, how does an undrafted free agent who took a year off of football go from getting into the Baltimore Colts camp to being the starter of week one? How does that happen? Well, I was again fortunate. I'm fortunate um, and lucky. There was a there was a coaching chat, coaching staff change for the previous previous coaches, and they brought in a guy by by the name of Frank Cush. And Frank was the uh, he was the head coach at Arizona State. And you're too young to remember this, but but Frank got run out of Frank got run out of um, uh, college football because he punched a punter. He punched his punter in the face. <laughs> And I'm not look. I'm not saying I'm not saying that's that's right. But I'm just saying it's a he did hit a punter. It was a punter they probably deserve to get punched once in a while, right? Um, that's amazing. But Frank was Frank was a guy. He was pain in the ass. He was he was just a huge pain in the ass. Ass and in a lot of ways pretty bushly. But what he was was he was unbelievably fair. Whoever did the work and busted their ass the most, they got time. They got playing time. And it wasn't just about talent or where you were drafted at or things like that. It was, are you contributing? Are you getting the most out of what you've got? And that was me. And I, I read that in Frank from the very beginning. And it was, uh, it was all that. It was if you're busting your ass and you're trying and you're not making mistakes, um, you get, you're going to get your opportunity to play. And when I got my, when I got my minutes on the field, I feel like I made the most of them. Probably a dumb question, but did you like him? Because I imagine a guy that's just socking punters may not be the most easygoing guy in the world. Oh, he's a jackass, huge jackass, huh? and God bless, he was there. You know, maybe that's you, you meet people during your life we, at, at certain times that that teach you lessons, and I'm sure I learned a lot from Frank. But uh, yeah, he was uh, he was old old school, and uh, yeah, but it, but but it worked for me, so I'm, I'm, I'm I was happy to go through the process. When you you mentioned when you were at the Cowboys, you, I think you said earlier I would have cut my ass too. At what point during the Baltimore uh, Colts training camp do you realize, hey, I'm not just a body in camp here. I have a chance to make this roster. Did that ever resonate throughout camp? It did, and I'll, and I'll tell you, it's one of the things that um, uh, that Ken Huff kind of told me. Now, now Ken was a first round draft pick out of uh, uh, University of North Carolina, and it was the same year that Walter Payton was drafted. And the Colts took Ken Huff instead of taking Walter Payton. Walter Payton went to the Bears. So, but but Huff was fantastic. But but uh, Ken taught me when you get when you get your reps, don't ever let anybody else have your reps. 
So when it was my time to get up and, you know, take a rep, whether it's in a, on a practice drill, in a, in a scrimmage or in a game, you made the, mo- you made the most of that. And then the more reps you get, then you have to jealously, jealously protect your position. It sounds, you know, it sounds kind of funny because you got a guy like Ken Huff who's helping me, and I'm literally going to take Ken's job at some time. But in the same aspect, he's teaching you this is the way you got to do it. You got to jealously guard what belongs to you because everybody here is, they're there for, anybody else who's playing guard is there for one reason, and that's to take your spot. How nervous were you when you make the team, you find out you're starting for the first game in the NFL? Was there a moment where you look around and you're like, holy shit, how did I get here? I knew how I got there. It's just, yeah, fair enough. to me, it was more like, holy shit, can I, can I do this consistently? Can I, can, can I, can I play at that standard? That's like, that's the hard thing about, look, getting to the, getting to the NFL is hard. Staying in the NFL, that's almost impossible. It's a three-year, it's a, on average, it's a three-year career. Three, three-year career, three-year, that's shorter than college, right? College is four years. So to to be, to make it to the NFL is tough, but to stay there and play at that kind of, that kind of level, that kind of intensity, banged up, all that kind of stuff. That's, to me, that was the, that was, that was the real challenge, just having some consistency about what I could do, how I could play. And yeah, and yeah, being a part of it, staying a part, staying a part of it jealously protecting what was mine you mentioned huff being a first round pick and giving you some advice it's interesting nowadays where you have first round picks that are making you know mid eight figures from the time they sign a contract and then you got undrafted free agents but it's like i right, boohoo they're making six seven hundred thousand dollars they're not exactly eating on the you know looking for food on the streets what was it like then like what is the contract discrepancy between you and a first round pick your first year in the nfl okay so so first of all these I'm I'm so proud of what these guys are getting paid now in the NFL. I, that's because that is the price of playing that game. This this is a brutal brutal physical game. Um, but the reason they have this money is because guys like me and Ken Huff and all those guys back in the '80s went on two strikes. And we in '82, I can I can remember we had a Tom Condon, who's if you t- want to talk about agents like Lee yeah. Steinberg, Tom Condon is. Is huge, right? He was the, he was our um, he was our NFL Players Association president, and I remember him and uh, the rest of the 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 leadership body from the players side, the players association, coming into the locker room and saying, "Guys, we got to go on strike, and we have to go on strike for fifty one percent of the gross." At the time, everybody just got a contract. What have you got offered? We wanted fifty one percent of the gross of the revenues they were coming. This is smart shit. This is nineteen eighty two, right? And they started explaining themselves. They said, these guys are going to launch satellites. That if you live in Atlanta, Georgia, or you live in Jackson, Mississippi, and you're a Colts fan, you want to watch all the Colts games, you just pay a fee on your TV. And, and we're like, that's bullshit. That's James Bond kind of stuff. This rumor is 1982. You don't have cell phones or anything like that. Right? So we went on strike. We went on strike for that. We didn't get, we didn't get all that until the next strike in 87. That's when that really started to come through. But once we got a percentage, once the players got a percentage of the revenue that was being created, then then the salaries just boom, just hit it. But the character that I was playing with, these are guys that also worked at paint stores or sold insurance. They played football because they loved to play football. It's what they did. It's who they it's who they were. It wasn't just it wasn't just about the money. 
you make $50,000 a year, it can't be just about the money, right? So so it was a, there was a bit of a different attitude with, with the players, but it was still that same kind of brotherhood. I would also say it was, I think it was pretty, I, th I think the game was a lot more physical then too. And I look at the, I look at some of the, uh, some of the videos and replays of games when like Bill Curry was playing. It's like, oh my God, you could clothesline somebody. Look at look at the old Jack Tatum highlights. Play for the Raiders. I mean, they're clotheslining guys. You can't. That stuff's illegal. People get arrested for less than that. It's even different now watching like early like Brian Dawkins or Ed Reed highlights versus where the rules are today. Where like I remember that Reggie Bush hit when I was a kid in the playoff game where he just got absolutely destroyed, or maybe I kept vice versa. But it's like that wouldn't be allowed now. People would gasp and talk about it on Sports Center for two yeah. days. Like we got, we got a pat on the, we got a pat on the back or a helmet sticker for doing that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like it's <laughs> get kicked out. Now you get kicked out of a game. You really smartly put the fact that you, the guys, I think you said very smart stuff. They were aware of the moment in terms of what they were asking for. You mentioned they were asking for 51%. I believe off the top of my head, NFL players are still only getting 48% now. And the fact that you guys had the wherewithal back then to ask for 51% just kind of like, I think that articulates where you guys knew where you stood in terms of the revenue that was coming and what you deserved. Well, it also, it also, you also have to look at where that money is spent, whether it's, whether it's 51, 48, 52%, I'm not sure, but how that money is being spent too. Most, most of the money has to go to, um, has to go to existing players, to, right. the, to, to the current players that are on the teams, as opposed to just draft picks. And I'll tell you the, the one flaw, uh, the one flaw that I see still in the, in the construct of the, of the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement, between the players and the uh, and the owners is there, you know, there's this there's this three year rookie salary uh, scale that you have, right? So the first guy makes more than the next guy who makes more than the next guy, and there's some bonuses and things like that built in there. But if you happen to be there's got there's got to be a way to accelerate free agency through that three year period. So if you're a guy like uh, I I don't care for Russell Wilson, but if you're a guy like Russell Wilson who gets drafted and goes to the Super Bowl. You get, you should be able to, you should be able to go back into the pool and get either be a, be a complete free agent or get the get the starting salary of all the uh, the the average of all the starting sal salaries at your position, right? Or if you're a guy like Ben Ut, who's a undrafted free agent, and you walk in and you start eight eight of the sixteen or seventeen games now, uh, your first year, you should be able to accelerate that process and go back into the pool. So you get a real, you know, you get, you, you get what you should get paid as a starter, not as a guy who, who didn't get drafted. Cause that's what you get tagged at. You, you get tagged as a guy who didn't get drafted and that salary follows you throughout your career, as opposed to this guy's a starter. He's proved he's a proven starter. He's got, he's got 16 starts or, you know, 24 starts, whatever it is. There, there needs to be something that accelerates that. Anyway, my, my thoughts on fixing the CBA. I think that's incredibly true. And then the one thing that's crazy to me about the way the NFL operates and, you know, me and my buddy, whenever we hang out, we don't really talk a ton of football, but if I can get one thing to get him going is the franchise tag because it suppresses true free agency where it's like this dangling carrot in front of you for the short term, but it really is just a complete suppressor to free agency. No, kind of really no matter where you stand. And it's crazy that in modern American sports, the NFL owners are still able to hold that kind of power when every other league, 
again, baseball, maybe not the best example, but at least at the top level has this ridiculous level of player empowerment. Football doesn't baseball, have No, no, no. Baseball's the best example because their union is the strongest too. Again, part of it has to do with the fact that you're, you're playing you're playing a professional sport where the average is only three years. So if you get, I've got eight credited seasons. I was in the in the league for 10 years. Um, that's really beating the, beating the average, right? Um, but when you think about um, real real free agency, you know the 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 NFL gave up for uh, we gave up free agency back. I want to say back in the early seventies or whatever, so we could have a dues checkoff for the union, so that the union would actually recognize that take and they have dues checkoff. Some, it was something goofy like that that we actually lost free agency, and it wasn't until it wasn't really until Reggie White took them all to court. You know, the great Reggie White who played defensive end for the Philadelphia Eagles, um, great ball player, uh, that we were able to actually start winning, uh, start winning those those rights back. And so that that leads me a last thing on this, because I, I could have talked about this for hours. I have a theory, and it's it's probably not totally accurate, but do you think part of that is because the NFL has historically had the smartest owners? I just look at some owners in the NBA and the M- and MLB and be like, this guy hates his sport, doesn't spend money, seems like, granted, it's weird to say that about billionaires because they're clearly very smart people from a sports sense. Like, this guy seems like a world-class dipshit, where in the NFL, I don't see a lot of that enough. Like, it seems like collectively the NFL have the smartest really? owners, and as bad as it sucks – that may be a reason why. And I've always kind of had that theory. I'm curious if that was your shared experience. But I, I think I think most of those guys, I think most of the owners are pretty smart. Um, I, I think they're pretty. Uh, I think they're pretty committed to making the NFL profitable. Doesn't mean they win. Just means that it's profitable. So a group like the Cincinnati Bengals, who never ever seen well, they, they're they're winning right now with Joe Burrow. So I got to pick. I got to pick somebody else. But a team, you know, a team like the Cleveland Browns, you can be, you can lose all the time. You're still making a lot of money. So Fine. I think I think you got to look at it from a business standpoint as opposed to a, um, as opposed to a, a, a truly competitive sport. And football, in football, I, I think it really matters from the top down. I think the, I think the ownership, uh, ownership, coaching, everything matters in football if you're gonna if you're gonna win and be outstanding. And so I keep asking you different variations of this, but when did Ben Nutt realize he was a real NFL player that could stick in this league? Oh, probably too late in my career. <laughs> but, really? Uh, uh, you know what? It's it's one of those things where you're. I mean, I knew I could play. I knew I could play as soon as I as soon as I got a starting spot. As soon as I stepped on the field, I knew I could play. I knew I could compete. It's all the other things, and then you start kind of setting goals. You want to. You, know, you want to you want to start every game. You want to be that foundational player. Um, you want to try to get you know Pro Bowl, All Pro rec- recognition. Um, can I play until I'm 30? And I remember that. I remember that goal. I remember that goal for sure. When I, um, in, in fact, when I finished, when I left the Colts, I left the Colts because I got put on Plan B. It was a pseudo form of free agency. We we're going. We we had finished. This was a uh, 89, 90. We had. We finished the strike in '87, and still working through some of the some of the free agency things. So the Colts put me on what they call Plan B, and it was a pseudo form of free agency. Uh, I was still the starter with the Colts, and you know I had long conversations with with uh, with Jim Mercer, who's the owner at the time, and uh, 
you know, you're, you're the man, Ben, but if we put any of these other younger kids on, on plan B, they'll leave for $5,000. So what, what the Colts didn't know is that my wife had got a promotion into back to Atlanta, back home to Atlanta with IBM. And we just had, we just had a young son in that. So to keep the family together, I, Tom Condon was my agent at the time. I said, look, let's, let's talk, let's talk to the Falcons. So I wound up, uh, wound up coming down to the Falcons and Jerry Glanville was a head coach down here. I don't know if you remember Jerry, but he's crazy, crazy yeah. ass guy. He would have at, at two day practices for training camp, he would have over 30 day. If you were over 30, you didn't have to practice the afternoon practice. So that's nice. That's nice, right? So you're standing there. If you're over 30, it was me, Mike Ken, and I think maybe Bill Fraley. There was like three of us standing there, which is then you look around and you go, well, we know who's next to leave. Because it's a young man's it's a young man's game too, right? So, but being the plan until I was part of my goal was to play until I was in my in my thirties, which I had the opportunity to do. So, um, but yeah, that's. Uh, I can't believe I got thirty story. I can't believe I got fifty minutes into it without asking about the strike. You, as you mentioned earlier, went through two strikes. So they struck your rookie year. What's it like being halfway through a rookie year? You think you're getting established in the NFL and all of a sudden there's no more games. I'd have been like, what the hell are you guys doing? Like, I'm, I'm making it here. Like, can we can we keep this going on for a year? I'd have been like, this is total bullshit. What are we doing? What was that like being yeah. a rookie undrafted guy just making and then all of a sudden the season stops? This is this is when you you have to you have to trust your veteran players that they know more than we do. And I and I did. I um, the guys that we had around us, and you remember Baltimore's kind of a blue collar town too. So, and my dad is, my dad uh, was part of the trades as a, as a pipe fitter early on. Um, so I actually, we would, before we went on strike, I actually called my, called my dad and talked to him about it. And, and I told him, I said, I, I don't quite I'm sure I understand this. We're going to, we're going to go on strike to get a whole bunch of benefits. We're going to wait a second. We're going to go on strike and I'm going to lose half my salary this year to get a bunch of benefits for guys that I'm not even going to be playing in the league when the benefits right. are, are given. He goes, it's not about you. It's about everybody else that's coming behind you. You got to, you, this is an opportunity to make the league and the working situation better, better for everyone that comes after you. That's the way you got to think about it. So um, it was, I would say it was semi-successful from a standpoint of just bringing the players together where we knew that we could we, we could have some solidarity uh, and, and fight you know fight with management but again it wasn't until 87 uh, where, and that was the year they brought the scab players in if you, if you remember you know, there were some movies oh, out yeah. and stuff like that too it wasn't really until 87 that we made the real we really started making some strikes it was it was actually that and the fact that the USFL came in and was starting to push salaries up too. That was another. That was another factor. It wasn't just the fact that we were threatening to go on strike or that we wanted more. It's the fact that they, uh, they, there was a new football league that was taking some of the talent and paying guys. Yeah, and it was like the really only actual threat to the NFL and really its existence, uh, aside from kind of the early AFL NFL days. And that's really sound advice that you got, and that's very fascinating to think about, particularly from the time period when that occurred. Whereas. <laughs> If my guy Rob's out there listening, this is not a specific example, but off the top of my head, if the company I work for, where it's like all the higher ups are going on strike and there's like, just trust us, we'll do this. But it's like, I'm not going to see the benefits. I'd have been like, get the hell out of here. Like, I want to go, I want to go earn a paycheck. 
How difficult was that to trust? Well, I like I like the thing as a Georgia Tech guy. I kind of understand it, uh, but it's but it's hard when you're you're, you're newlywed. You're just trying to make some make some money. I I literally would have made more money working at Florida Power and Light than than my rookie year in the NFL. And like you said, you're just happy to be there at that point. I'm just happy to be there. Yeah, I mean that was the that was that was that was the goal. So that's crazy to me. So the second one, we'll go through the second strike really quickly. That's what I was going to ask is how so you're five years in the NFL at that point. So I imagine the temptation wasn't as strong. Do you share the same Scabs is not a thing that has happened in my lifetime, really. But I love the term. I don't exactly know what it means. I mean, I know exactly like what it means, but where's the term scab come from? Like, do you hate scabs like all the old guys do? Or are you like the hell with this scab that you just it cracks me up um, here talking about it? Well, here's here's the thing. Um you gotta you gotta think about people in a broader, broader sense than that. In fact, those guys are that's their opportunity. Exactly. And, that's what and, I always thought. And the answer is you don't like them because it's actually it's actually elongating the process of getting what's best for everybody, including any of those guys that could go that could play, but weren't on the team because they didn't have to go on strike. If, are you following me? Yeah, now, no, that makes we had, perfect we had one sense. Guy, we had we had a scab who played uh, the replacement players by the name of um, Mike Pryor, and Mike wound up. Mike's a great guy. He crossed, he crossed the picket line of what it is a as a um, as a replacement player, but we kept him on. The Colts kept him on because the guy could play. And he's a player. He's he's with the Colts organization right now. Mike is a great guy. So, you know, from from that context, you know, everybody's everybody's trying to get what they can do and and you know find that find their spot, uh, so to speak. And you know, Mike Mike found one. He wouldn't have had that opportunity if we hadn't all left for I don't know what that was like six weeks or something or something like that. So I know. I mean, I'm not insinuating that you speak for everybody, but it sounds like from the way you speak about it, is like the general disdain for scabs is a little bit misguided for guys that were actually in it. You know what? It's going to depend individual to individual. I'm sure, but I I, I would think so. I would I would I would at least I would at least hope so. Again, it's just guys trying to. If you're look, I didn't have that for whatever reason. Maybe I'm just confident, but I didn't have that. I, I didn't have that much of an issue thinking I wasn't going to come back and get my job, or there's going to be some other guy who walked in off the street that's going to play better than me after I've been through all the training camps, all the other years, and everything else like that. Nah, fuck that. That's not. No. So your opinion on scabs aside, it, it was Ben Hutt in 1987. Is are you one of those guys that was telling like in 1982 you were being told to just trust the process? Are you at that point yet? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, trust the process. There's op- there's an opportunity here, but again, you got to think about this stuff. And it's hard for young people to do. It's hard for me to do too. Is that it's not about you. It's about everybody that comes after you. I, you picked up on it. I think I picked up on it earlier. You eventually became a Tom Condon client. Is that correct? You mentioned Tom Condon. Yeah. Tom, Tom was my, Tom was my agent my last few years there in the, uh, in the NFL. Was that your first and only agent experience? What was it like actually being an undrafted guy that kind of made a roster and then made a name for himself? And nah, it's like, hey, you know, I got an agent I, here. I did have, I did have another guy by the name of, uh, by the name of Rob Bennett, who was out of DC and, and Rob was a um, he was a he was an attorney. That's that's all I can say. And he was fair enough. You know, they, they were doing things back then uh, where it's like this. One, one of the reasons I got into the investment management business, like I am now, 
uh, and I've been I've been in this business for 30 something years is because I didn't understand anything about money or investments and how that stuff worked. And I had an agent who was putting me into I owned an office park in St. Louis. I owned a dozen oil wells. I didn't understand any of that stuff. So in my, I come from a pretty humble background where my, you know, I couldn't go to my parents and talk about because they didn't know either. So it was, um, it was really a learning process to understand better. How, what do you do with, what do you do with money? It's, you know, like, like running, some, some people can make money. It's a, it's a little bit of a gift. Like some guys can run a four, two, some guys can make money. And even people that know how to make money, a lot of times don't know what to do with it. How do you preserve it? How do you make it grow? Those kind of things. And I wanted to have some education about that. Um, would have some education about that and want to want to get into the business. I was looking at your NFL timeline and the way that like how the Colts performed in all the years that you played there. And my first instinct was, my God, this guy walked so Joe Thomas could run. You're like a modern day Joe Thomas of the Cleveland Browns. It's like we didn't win a ton of games, but I had a job. I made good money and I had one hell of a career. Did the NFL losses wear on you as much as the college ones did? Um. Not, you know, a, a loss is a loss. It's a little bit different when you're. Uh, it's a little bit different when you're in college because you can always win the night, you know. And that actually holds. <laughs> that, that also holds true to the pros. I don't know why. So why I would separate the two, right? But um, you know, you're getting paid in the NFL. I, you know, I don't know. The pressure is greater in the NFL. I will say that. Um, you know, in college, it really is really a team sport. You're gonna, they're probably gonna just not yank your scholarship, especially back when I was playing in the in the 70s uh, um, whereas in the NFL it's like look you have a bad game you're gone if you if you can't play you're gone we, we I watched them cut guys every single week because we got we're looking for the right guy we're looking for a different guy just constantly constantly changing so what was your first real contract where you were like, I'm a sta- established guy. I can provide for my family. I'm not just trying to make ends meet here. I'm not just trying to survive. What year did your first real contract come? Oh, shoot. Um, I guess it was probably my my third, like my third year in. Or so no, 84, 85? Yeah, 84, 80, 84, 85. And then uh, was going to do one more contract at the very end. And that was just... You know, there's a there's a rule in the NFL that you play all you can, plus two more, because that, you just right. You just, That's <laughs> fair. I'm gonna, I'm gonna milk a couple of years out of this thing. My body's my body's shot, but um, yeah, that was um, yeah, that's that's it. And there's yeah, that's probably that's probably that's probably the timeline right there. I'm just trying to think if there's anything that was kind of outstanding about that. You know, more than anything, you. Back then, also, you tried not to you try to get as much as you can without pricing yourself out of the t- off the team too, right? It's not like offensive guards are the stars of the show, right? And I played with a group. I'll tell you, I think our offensive line, that offensive line for the Colts, I would say is probably one of the best offensive lines we've ever had. Had some great running backs with with Eric Dickerson, Curtis Dickey, Randy McMillan, uh, Albert Bentley, guys like that, but. I've got I've got Chris Hinton, uh, who's all pro, all pro should be in the should be in the Hall of Fame. Ray Donaldson, another all pro should be in the Hall should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Ron Solt, who's an all, who's an all pro. All three of these guys were first round draft picks. Uh, Ray Donaldson out of the University of Georgia. Uh, Chris Hinton out of uh, out of uh, Northwestern. Ron Solt out of uh, out of Maryland. And then it was me and a guy by the name of Kevin Call 
who uh, who was the other tackle. And Kevin was out of the University of Colorado. He was a high draft pick. I was the only I was the only free agent. And Chris Hinton, if you know his story, first round this will buy this will win you a beer in a bar someplace. Who's the only offensive lineman traded for two first round quarterbacks? That Chris, Chris Hinton. Brain twister off the off the cuff. Chris Hinton. Now, who are the two quarterbacks? John Elway and Jeff George. So wow. there's a there's a great 30 for 30 called uh, Elway to Marino. Uh, yeah, I think it's called Elway to Marino. And part of that whole trade. And uh, so, so Chris is the first round pick in 1980. And he wasn't really the first round pick. The first round pick was John Elway. And John Elway did not want to go to the Colts. And part of it is he knew his, his dad was also a college coach. They hated Frank Cush, the aforesaid jackass coach we had back in back in Baltimore, right? So Elway's like, fuck it, I'm not going to I'm not going to the Colts. I'm not even gonna play football. I'm gonna go play baseball for the Yankees, which he which he actually wound up signing a contract. And uh, Ernie Accorsi, who was the general manager in a, for the Colts at the time, and a, just a fantastic, fantastic gentleman. Actually, it was one of the guys, him and a guy by the name of George Young, kind of are the ones who created the blueprint for what a, for what a modern-day general manager is and does. Anyway, he had plans on how to what to do with John Elway. And behind his back, and unbeknownst to him, Bob said the owner of the Colts at the time, made a trade with the Denver Broncos for sending Elway to the Broncos and brought Chris Hinton to, to, uh, to Baltimore. It was Chris Hinton, uh, Chris Hinton, it was uh, Mark Herman, a quarterback out of Purdue, and a player to be named later, which was Ron Solt. So, yeah, Chris Hinton, fantastic guy, but a great, a great story behind his arrival in the uh, in the NFL and how he was, uh, he was part of everything that was going on between uh, a number of the quarterbacks getting traded back and forth, John Elway in particular. That's an incredible story and probably maybe one of the greatest sports factoids of all time. As soon as you said that, I was like, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's absolutely bonkers. So I want to ask you about the transition from Baltimore to Indianapolis, because it's very clear your career was smooth sailing. You had it way too easy, right? You take a gap year, undrafted free agent, strike a rookie year, really no adversity there. Then you get two years in and you move cities. What is that like moving cities as an NFL franchise? How does that actually work? Or at least how did it work then? Yeah. So, um, so this, this was, this was really interesting because Bob Ursay had been out traveling to cities, big cities that did not have professional football teams at the time. He went to, he went to um, Phoenix who now has the Cardinals, right? He went to Jacksonville, who's got the Jags. And he went to Indianapolis, who got who have the Colts. And he was shopping these. He was shopping the teams around, and mainly because he was trying to get a what what the story was is he was trying to put leverage on the city of Baltimore, state of Maryland, to get a new stadium. And uh, the, maybe the only thing I'll agree with Bob Ursay on is the fact that that stadium was old. There were some great ghosts and some great championship teams that played in there under Unitas and Gino Marchetti and. Bobby Boyd and Raymond Berry and all those guys, but it was an old beat up stadium. The lockers were all oh, the lockers were nasty, all that. So he's trying to get a new stadium and they weren't, they, they weren't going for it. The city wasn't going for it. So he, said, he goes, fine, I'm going to shop it around. He swore he was never going to move. He swore he was never going to move the team. Well, 
I'm at home. In fact, my wife had just transferred uh, to Baltimore. She was actually working down in D.C. So she just from living in Austin, Texas, being an engineer there with IBM, IBM moved her to be so we could be together. She's in she's working out of D.C. And I'm at home. We've, we've been doing a split workout. So Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Wednesday, your, Wednesday is your day off. We've been asking the coaches, what the hell's going on with with, you know, uh, uh, with Bob Ursay and you know, shopping the team or what's what's actually going on? They're like, nothing's nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Don't worry, don't worry about it. Wednesday, I'm at home watching television, and there's a it's bad weather outside in Baltimore, that sort of thing. And there's a news break, and it's a there's moving vans at the Colts headquarters. It's it's at night. It's like nine o'clock, dark at oh night. My God. And these moving vans moved in, and they little they didn't move. They just took shit and threw it in the back of the moving vans and hit the gas and got out of there. And the moving vans were Mayflower moving vans. So important important to remember they were May, Mayflower moving vans. So anyway, I, I literally found out about it from the news like that. And I got a call, I think maybe the next day or the day after that said, hey, the team's, the team's relocated. Uh, when you, you know, get your things together, we're going to have training camp. Well, it's going to be in Anderson, Indiana, stuff like that. I was like, Indiana? I, I literally had to get them. I had to get a map out to find out exactly where Indiana was. I know, I know where generally it is, but I just, I'd never been to Indiana. So um, we wind up, we, you know, we wind up have we wind up moving to, moving to Indianapolis. And you know, we always, one of the jokes was our people came over on the Mayflower and the. That's the amazing. Mayf- yeah. Our people came over on the Mayflower. Um, our, the, the Mayflower uh, franchise in Baltimore went completely dead. And what's interesting is that, um, opening week, so September 18th, uh, was it? No, September uh, 10th, 11th, opening week for the for the NFL. We're, this year, we're actually having the Colts' 40th reunion, for Colts' 40th anniversary of being in Indianapolis. So they're bringing all the uh, bringing all the originals back for a little for a little celebration. The ones of us that are still alive and kicking, but yeah. You're two years into your career at that point. I know you were just trying to get established, but I'm just curious from the aspect of at a certain point, you played 10 years in the NFL. You had a long career with the Colts. I imagine even being an offensive guard, not the most glamorous position on the field. People who watched the Colts knew who you were. Had you ingratiated yourself with the Baltimore fan base at all by that point? And what was it like oh, yeah. to move to a completely different city where it's like, who the hell are these guys? Yeah. So the Baltimore fans were fantastic. They love the Colts. I can't emphasize that enough. They love the Colts. Hated the Ursays. Didn't didn't give a shit about the Ursays, but they loved the Colts. So that was that was tough. And I didn't leave in the middle of the night like the Colts did. I said right. my goodbyes and thank yous and all that. That being said, when we got to Indianapolis, it really was a a love affair from the start. They they were it's funny because they're great, really smart, uh, really smart sports fans. They love basketball. Basketball's number one there, but but they embraced the Colts and it was. It was a blast. It was, we had so much fun being there. And again, I love Baltimore. It's just, you know, one of my favorite harbors in the world, but it was a, it was really a fresh start for the Colts going to Indianapolis, picking up a new fan base. There was a brand new stadium, which they couldn't get done in Baltimore. It was sold out. And part of the deal, I think was that, it, you know, the, the city promised, if you move the team here, we're going to sell out for the first 10 years. We'll buy all the tickets, whatever. Um, so it really was. We met some fantastic, some fantastic people and friends there. Uh, great, had some great experiences with teammates there. My son was born in Indianapolis. So, um, you know, the Indy 500. That's a that's a great event. Got to meet race car 
race car drivers and uh yeah it was it's, it was it's overall it was just a great fascinating experience and to be part of that kind of moment in history where look franchises move they always have right we watch the we watch the Raiders do it every every couple of years right but the but the Dodgers used to be in New York they used to be the right. New York trolley Dodgers right they've been in LA forever San Francisco Giants used to be in New York right so teams move you mentioned it's funny, like having to get out a map and be like, hey, "Wait, exactly where we're moving here." I uh, in twenty eighteen, I did an internship for MLB.com covering the Cincinnati Reds, so I knew where Cincinnati was. But I'd be lying if I knew that it was basically northern Kentucky, just on the other side of the river. But my girlfriend at the time, now my fiance, she comes to visit me the first week, like first couple of weeks. I pick her up at the Cincinnati airport, which is actually in Kentucky, which put her brain in more of a pretzel. We're driving down through downtown Cincinnati to get to my apartment. She was like, wow, she's from Louisiana. She's like, this is like bigger than Shreveport. I'm like, yeah, there's a major league baseball team here. What did you think was going on while I was up here? But in my defense, as much as I like to make fun of her for that, I didn't exactly know where Cincinnati was on the map. I didn't know how close Indianapolis was. I feel like the Midwest just gets lumped into the, this is this region of the country. We don't know anything about your cities. No, you're absolutely right. Um, it does get kind of lumped in. You hear about the flyover states, that, that sort of thing too. But Indianapolis is a great city, man. Great people there. The weather's a little, the weather's a little tricky being being Southern boy because it gets cold. Our first, I want to say our first winter in Indianapolis, it was something like eighty below zero because of the wind chill oh, factor. God. But it's still eighty below zero. I think I, I think I owned a jean jacket or something like that. So it, but great, great people, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful place to uh, to have a family. Yeah, Great place someone, to play football. If someone tells me it's only 80 below because of the wind chill, I'm probably just telling them to get stepping. That doesn't really matter at that point. Yeah, That's, yeah it doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter at that point. You are, yeah, if you go outside, you're probably gonna die. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great way to put it. So I don't want to keep you here all night, but it's funny to hear an NFL decorated NFL vet. You just openly said in Indiana, basketball's first. Like, and that's crazy. I have relatives from that part of the country. And they don't get SEC football. And they're like, I don't understand this whole thing. It is nuts how big of a difference is that really is basketball is king there and you played at the highest level of football there is. Yeah. And I should I should say, I should say college basketball for sure. And the Pacers are great too. We had when I was uh, when I was playing with the Colts, we had Reggie Miller there. And you know, Reggie Thriller, man, he was that, that was a lot of fun going to watch him. I bet that was a fun time in Indianapolis. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And the city was still, you know, pretty new and kind of up and still up and coming. Um but they do. They love their basketball, man. It's and it's fun. I mean, it's it's fun. And they, but they they love. What, what's funny is they they've got great football just north there up in Notre Dame. You know, some some great historic football right there too. But they do. They love the, they love the Colts and and I love them for that. When do you know it was time to call it quits? When did you know that it was over? Uh, it was the end of my two more. <laughs> We talked about you play all you can and two more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I had, um, I finished up, uh, I came down to Atlanta with the Falcons and money was really, money was bad. I want to go on up. Uh, Jerry Glenville, who really made his, made his chops as a special teams coach, used to like to have the starters on special teams. So I'm, I'm 31 years old. I'm in the, I was in the kickoff. I was in the wedge for kickoff team, for kickoff return team. And, uh, on one of the one one of the one of the plays of one of the games in preseason, I took a helmet on the side of the knee and it was just really bad. So 
the, the Falcons wound up uh, letting me letting me go, so it's the only team that ever really cut me because I, I know the Colts never cut me. Well, well, the Cowboys cut me, Falcons cut me. So those those two teams are I'm not I don't like that much. Anyway, my uh, Tom Conning goes to work. And I've got teams calling, asking asking for my services. So I have an opportunity to go to uh, opportunity to go to uh, Tampa Bay. Uh, worked out with the Redskins, worked out with the Rams, and then the Patriots. And the, the best spot was the Patriots where I was going to actually get a chance to play. Now, here's the thing. I could barely walk, and they passed me on the, they passed me on the physical, and that, which was a crime. That's, that's just a crime. They should have done that. And when I was in the locker room just, just finishing things up, I saw one of the, uh, uh, one of the old players from the, from the Broncos, Sean Farrell, who had blown his shoulder out. And he literally was like putting pads on. I was like, Sean, what are you doing? He goes, they made me go out and they made me go out and just do drills with one arm, right? even though I can't play. So it's like, this kind of sounds fucked up. Oh, anyway, man. I'm sitting in, I'm, I'm in the hotel room in Foxborough. And I can remember this. I don't, I don't smoke a lot, but I was smoking a cigarette. And I was drinking a beer. And I called my wife on the phone and uh, said, Lizzie, uh, I had to, had to call her. For, didn't have pay phone. Didn't have cell phones. Remember, so I had to call her from the from the hotel phone, it's you know, nine one, and all the numbers. And I said, "Hey, I, I don't think I want to do this anymore." And she goes, "That's great. I've been waiting for you to. I've been waiting for you to call. Come home." So it's like that's all. That's all I needed to hear was that she was she was supportive of that. So when they came to pick me up the next morning to actually go to practice, I already had the playbook. They already gave me the playbook. I was I was I was scheduled to go get dressed and start practice. I said, "Take me to the airport. I'm done." So after that, there was a, fur, a flurry of calls, you know, like condom calls and just take the paycheck because he doesn't get paid unless I get paid. Just go be there, whatever. And they were all pissed off because they could have brought somebody else in, all that kind of bullshit. But I, I pretty much knew it was I pretty much knew it was over then. I was just I was tired. You mentioned at the end it was a knee issue, but I mean, this could be an own podcast in its own right. How many actual minor injuries did you have at that point? I know it was a knee thing, but I mean, as a football player, how, how, I mean, is it 10 deep in terms of what you actually had wrong with you at that point? Oh, there's, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so, so right now I'm sitting there talking to you. I feel brand new because both my shoulders and knees are brand new. But really? I've had, I've had, you know, ribs pulled out of my back, broken nose, teeth, fingers, um, uh, literally like tendons and stuff. There's just, there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole list. And I, it's kind of funny because I remember a poster of um, the great Jim Otto, who you're probably not, not familiar with, but, but Jim Otto was legendary center for the Oakland Raiders. And I was always a Raiders fan growing up and he wore double zero, zero, zero. But this guy had more surgeries and injuries than anybody. There used to be a poster of him with all these, with an arrow and, you know, broken vertebrae, broken hand, broken knee, replaced shoulder, you know, all just listed up and down. It was like 70, 70. So the point is, is that I feel better than Jim Otto. But yeah, I've had, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of injuries. And that's probably a way, a good way to preface my last football related question. And I know this is at the very end of your career, but I'm just curious, does the name Jeff Harad mean anything to you of course i know jeff harad jeff and, I, jeff and i were teammates together in indianapolis and so that was right around your last year and i'll, I'll admit so I've, I've grown up going to Ole miss games my entire life my dad was kind of a first generational miss fan so anybody like 99 and forward i i got an encyclopedia on them but i i really have not really had any sort of generational knowledge of old miss players and one of the things i've very much enjoyed doing through the years is going back and gaining an understanding of it and 
about a year ago, I read a story, I think it was either in The Athletic or The Indianapolis Star by Zach Kiefer about Jeff Harad and all the things he had endured football-wise since his post-career. And it was tied into an Ursay thing with the Ring of Honor, and that's really neither here nor there for the purpose of this. But that guy basically sacrificed his entire future to play football, and you came out in better shape than a lot of guys in your age. I guess the way to ask it is, do you have any regrets about playing football as long as you did, and do you consider yourself fortunate compared to a lot of the peers around you at that point? No, I'm uh, what I consider myself just to be an unbelievably lucky person, but I work my ass off to be lucky. Um, Jeff, by the way, is a great guy, a hell of a ball player too. Really, um, really, I mean, he's he's built he's built to play defense. He's a uh, just a just a solid all round ball player. I started um, looking at his stats, and I was like, I can't believe I've never heard of this guy. He was unbelievable. The problem was the teams. Were oh. there. Well, he, you know, and he was playing on the Colts too, so not winning, winning a lot of, winning a lot of games. You're not, you know, on the you're not on Monday night very much too. But, um, you know, to 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 address your question, you know, I feel I, I would do it again if that's what you're asking. I would do it again. Partially, the uh, for me, the adventure was was great. I, I loved it. I love when I think back. You know, football sucks. Let me say that. Here's the thing about football. When you're playing other sports, when you're when you're practicing baseball, when you're practicing it's golf, kind of fun. you're playing golf, you're playing baseball. When you're practicing volleyball, you're playing volleyball. When you're practicing football, you're you're pushing a sled. You've got a you know you got a, a two by eight between your legs and you're you're hitting hitting somebody head on, trying to trying to push them off the line. It's <clears throat> it sucks. I mean, it's it's a hard hard game, but the guys that I've seen play and kind of enjoy it is because it's not just what they do. It's kind of who they are, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I think that's well said. And before I keep you all night, I hate to gloss over what you've done since you left football. And I don't want to keep you for literally two and a half hours, but take me through the transition off the field and what you've done since and what that was like, because again, you're not a guy that was playing in 2012 and you maybe got two contracts and you put 35 million bucks in the bank. And if you know, you were remotely responsible, you're pretty much good for the rest of your life. What was the transition post football life and take me up to your career since? Yeah. So, um, thanks for that. So like I'll, I played when you still had an off season. So we, we had to work out every, we had to work out every day, that sort of thing, stay in shape, but you had an off season. So I, I worked for IBM one year. My, my wife got me a job with IBM and I worked for a guy by the name of George Kirkley at the while you're playing football. Baltimore. Huh? While, oh, you're yeah, playing while, football. I was, while I was playing football, my off, wow. my off season, okay. of my NFL career. So I worked for a guy by the name of George Kirkley and George taught me how to sell the IBM consultative selling system. Um, then I also got a I also got a commercial real estate license uh, one year, and again I wanted to, I had an interest in investment management, and, our, uh, and actually a guy named John Mason from our players union called me and said, "Hey, we've got a opportunity for post career with Merrill Lynch, but we need some guys that will commit and dedicate themselves to get licensed and kind of work there." So I said, "Yeah, I'll do I'll do that." So. Um, I got licensed in 1987. I did this during the off seasons. I worked with Merrill Lynch and kind of learned the business. And then when I retired from the NFL, I knew exactly what I was going to go do. And I went over to Georgia Tech, had my connections there, and they introduced me to the local. Here's here's uh, uh, here's Jerry Goldsmith at at Merrill Lynch. He'll put you to work there. But you need to meet this guy named Charlie Brady, 
<laughs> this other guy named Herky Harris, who worked with a company called Invesco. And they're building up this investment management company. And they're great Georgia Tech guys. So I, I literally walked in the door on those guys. They both came out to meet me and I struck up a friendship with them. And it took me five years for them to, uh, it took me five years for them to get them, give me to hire my ass. But I finally got to work at Invesco and I've loved it. I've been there, I've been there 27 years. And it's been a great, it's a great industry, great field. It's always interesting. There's always some shit going on where, you know, interest rates are rising or there's, it's high tech or whatever, but it's, it's been, it's been fascinating. And for you leaving football, I imagine you're like, Hey, I have to transition into something else. Like I can't just do nothing for the rest of my life. And one of the things nowadays, that's honestly kind of sad with some football players is with the increased media attention and what they become from the time they're 14, 15 years old, football is their entire life. And then when they leave, they don't really know what to do and transition out of it. How easy was it for you to get motivated to get good at something else that was so drastically different than football? Well, I understand what it takes to be a professional, but it's really, really hard to leave. And, and I, I'd be lying if I didn't say my first my first year, my first two years out of the league, I wasn't still taking calls to see if as an opportunity to get back on the field and really? an offensive guard. Oh, yeah, it's it's hard. It's a drug. It's hard. It's what, you, it's what you've done since you were a little kid. So it's really hard to uh, – the, the transition is much harder than you think. And I think guys are doing a pretty good job of it these days. One, because they got so much money in the bank. That helps. But then also because we have we have better training and better education for guys on when you transition, this is what to expect, and this is what you need to do. So as you kind of look back at your career now, do you ever take any time to kind of reflect on, my God, how did this happen for me? From a, not a highly recruited guy to playing 10 years in the NFL. I mean, I know you had belief in yourself and it's all based off your hard work, but is there any party that's like, damn, this was kind of cool. This was not really supposed to happen all the time. Look, all, it, it didn't take much. Only everything you got. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was easy, easy. It's what they say. It's what they say about poker, right? It's a hard way to make it easy living. Um, yeah, you know, you know, Brian. It's um, no, nah, man. I was fortunate. I just, uh, I, like I said, I had. Uh, it's been really blessed and just and lucky in a lot of a lot of regards to be in the right place at the right time and have people that kind of care about you. And I've had I've had great mentors and people that have just kind of <clears throat> helped show me the way. Whether it was for the NFL or whether it was for investment management or you know working at Invesco. Um, yeah, and I, th I think that has some. I think that says something for you know the the people you surround yourself with. I got two mop up questions as we wrap up here. I always miss one or two. The first one is Rob told me about a story about you took an ambulance to your house or something, or maybe no, no, it was maybe like a morgue car, and you basically uh, in, inadvertently it. convinced your mom that you died. Can you take me through that? <laughs> sure. No casual right, so, uh, way to I'm say a, that, but sure. I'm a, fr I'm a freshman in uh, Vidalia, Georgia. I'm playing outside linebacker. And uh, so I'm in, the I'm in the ninth grade. And playing outside linebacker, I remember playing pretty distinctly. Um, it's actually a run play. Uh, it's, a, it's a play action pass, right? But it's a, but it's a run. Anyway, um, this kid comes over and he hits me in a way where my knee is severely, severely broken. I mean, if you, if you look at your leg, straight down and have a right angle turn on it. That's how bad the break was. It was bad, right? So I'm laying on the field screaming and the coaches, the coaches call for the ambulance and the ambulance come, 
comes and in the ambulance, the ambulance in Vidalia is also the Ronnie Stewart funeral home Hearst. So it doubles as, doubles as both. <clears throat> so, and they take me to Memorial's medical hospital to see, you know, take me to the emergency room at the hospital. My house, I grew up in on uh, 501 Meadows Lane. It's right down the street from the hospital. So on the way to the hospital, the coaches decide, um, the coaches decide, well, what, let, let's stop and tell his mom. So they pull in the driveway, knock on the door. My mom, Charlene, comes out and they say, Ms. Ben had an accident on the football field and she looks out. She didn't see the, she didn't see the ambulance. She sees the hearse from the rice to her funeral home. And she's thinking, like, what the fuck, right? Yeah, like, what is happening, my son? The next thing I know, they're, they're, they're packing her up beside me in the back of the hearse, the ambulance, whatever you want to, whatever you want to oh call She's out cold, man. She's out cold. So they take, they take us up to the hospital to uh, to Meadows. They couldn't really couldn't do anything for me there. It was just that severe of a break other than painkillers. Wind up driving to uh, wind up driving to Savannah to a great doctor who set my leg and uh, set my leg, put me in a cast. I was in a cast for I don't know six six seven for, for a long time, a couple months at least. And uh, he says, "Don't ever play football again. You can never play football again." So, you know, I thank I thank him for fixing my leg, and I thank my folks for not listening to the doctor. Yeah, as I say, little did he know. So just to be clear, your mom went out cold because she thought you might be dead. Oh, she thought she she thought I was dead. She thought they said Ben had an accident on the football field. She looks out there and thinks, "Well, he's dead in the back of that in the back of the hearse." So. I imagine you're not unconscious at any point when your mom comes to, like, what's it like being like, Hey mom, I'm still alive and kicking here at 17, 15, 16 years old. I'm still around. Well, I think, I think she was pretty relieved, Brian, when, when she, when she came to, and I was like, Hey mom, what's, yeah. <laughs> what's shaking? What's shaking, sweetie? That is an amazing story. Last thing I had for you, and this is really just for my own personal curiosity, best defensive lineman you ever went up against. Oh man, I went against I'm one of the, Against a bunch of good ones, everybody kicked my ass, right? Um, I talked. Really not. About, you made it quite a while. I talked. I talked about Julius Adams. Julius, Julius was great. Um, got played against some really good guys. When you think about, um, um, oh shit, man, there's somebody I'm like, you know, how long? How long? Uh, Joe Klecko, who just won the Hall of Fame. Joe from the Jets, one of the one of the great ball players and a great guy too. He was just. Just stone cold badass. Um, Reggie Reggie Wilkes, of course. I mean, uh, Reggie um, Philadelphia Eagles. Help me. Oh, Reggie White. Reggie White. Thank you, Reggie White from Philadelphia Eagles. One of the uh, one of the best. Um, Doug Betters was actually with the with the uh, with the Dolphins was was pretty damn. He was pretty damn good. Um, oh shit! There, yeah, a lot of lot of lot of good players. <laughs> That was a veteran answer. You considered Howie Long and then skipped over him to someone else. That's it. That's yeah, awesome. okay. You went up against okay. real dudes. That was oh. Yeah. He's, yeah. <laughs> this he's is uh that was all I had for you. I really appreciate the time. People who listen to this podcast frequently are going to roll their eyes at this. I told you I'd keep you like 40 minutes, and here we are an hour, 40 minutes later. This was just so enjoyable for me. Time flew. Same. I really, I really enjoyed that, too. I did, you did a great job. That's going to do it for our show today. Tomorrow, we've got a very special guest. We have a former Ole Miss football legend. I won't say who. Pretty important guy during the Eli Manning area. Take your guesses. But be on the lookout that tomorrow to get you kickstarted in your weekend for football season. Then we'll have Walden on Sunday as we are back full 
fully in the swing of things. Thanks to Ben's time. Thanks for listening to this podcast as always, and we'll catch you again tomorrow.